politely, Buck Dog's gastrointestinal El Nino went into hyperdrive. I must have sat on a rock for close to half an hour. But he claims his new wonder lure will not only catch the fish, but it'll actually change your life. We'd hope and pray that we'd catch a little brim. Maybe if we caught two or three of them, my Aunt Ree would fix them for dinner that night. We love stories! We do love stories! I'm Sam Payne, and it's time for the Apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers, and hopefully tales that will remind you of stories that you can tell with the people that you love. And today, we're going to take you on a very special fishing trip. So grab your pole, your tackle box, and a Tupperware container full of worms, and of course, what's a fishing trip without some good stories to tell, to pass the time? And what's a good fishing story without a little exaggeration? Well, we've gathered some of the biggest fishing stories around for today's episode for your enjoyment from tellers like Bill Lepp and Kevin Kling and Karen Golden and Connie Regan-Blake and more. And we're going to begin with Bill Lepp. He's known for his tall tales and as a multiple winner of the West Virginia Liars Contest, he knows how to spin a yarn of unimaginable proportions. And the thing is, he can sell it to you, too. Logically, you might know what he's saying isn't true, but the way he tells it, you just got to believe it. In this fishing tale, he talks about the infamous monster stick, a fishing rod of epic strength, capable of taming even the most fearsome fish. But with such power, things can get a little out of hand if you're not careful. This story is about the last adventure with the monster stick before its retirement. It's called The Monster Stick's Last Ride. Bill Lepp on the Appleseed. My brother Paul passed away in 1998, but many of the times he stood on the stage of the Liars Contest and bedazzled us all with stories of the monster stick. Now, the monster stick was Paul's nine-foot surf-casting rod, complete with six miles of brand-new 50-pound test-strand carp cord. It was the castingest outfit he ever did own, and he never let anyone else use it, mainly because the monster stick was a dangerous thing in the hands of an amateur, largely because it was such a bear to cast. Casting the monster stick involved a two-handed, full-body twist that was a cross between an Olympic hammer throw and a ballet pirouette. Casting from shore presented a myriad of problems, and casting from any vessel smaller than an aircraft carrier almost always resulted in the boat being capsized. Strange things just happened again and again whenever the monster stick reared its head. It was sort of the Pandora's box of fishing equipment. Take the time my grandfather was bringing the monster stick to this country. He cast off the deck of a huge cruise liner, snagged what he thought was a whale, and only realized he was mistaken when he'd brought the thing alongside the ship and the guy in the crow's nest hollered, Iceberg! Needless to say, I never went near the monster stick. I never touched it at all, but after my brother died, I was out in my garden doing a little plowing when I heard a voice behind me that said, If you bait it, catfish will come. Well, I looked around and I didn't see anybody, but then I heard the voice again. If you bait it, catfish will come. Well, I could tell from the slow West Virginia draw of that voice that it could only belong to one of two people. It either had to be God speaking to me or my brother Paul. But either way, the revelation was clear. The monster stick needed one last fling, and I was going to have to be the man to do it. So I snuck into my sister-in-law's house. I took the monster stick down from its place of honor. I bought myself an eight-foot bass boat and a five-gallon bucket of raw beef livers, and I set sail on the mighty waters of the Buckhannon River. 
Now, everything was going fine, and I think everything would have gone fine that day if I hadn't made but one mistake. You'd see, I decided it would be a good idea to bring my dog, Buck, along in that boat with me. And most of you know, Buck is my super dog, whose mother was a German shepherd and whose daddy was a prolific and extremely determined basset hound. But like most men in my family, well, Buck ain't too smart and he's sort of funny looking. In fact, when God was passing out brains, Buck thought he said drains, and so he asked for one that emptied quickly. On the other hand, when God was passing out noses, Buck thought he said roses, and so he asked for one that smelled real good. Just to give you an indication of how good that dog could smell, you remember that fairy tale about the princess that sleeps on the 23 mattresses and she finds the one with the pee on it? Well, that's nothing. I guarantee you that even if you had 23,000 mattresses, it would take Buck less than a minute to find the one with the princess's pee on it. Well, anyway, I was getting ready to fish, so I took one whole beef liver and I threw it to Buck Dog to keep him quiet while I was fishing. He was a little bit jealous that I was going to give all that liver away to the fish. And then I put another liver on the hook of the monster stick. I closed my eyes and I went into that full body twist cast. Well, as I went around, I put all my weight on my right foot, which caused the boat to list in that direction. And that pushed all the water on the right side of the river up against the right bank. Well, then I put all my weight on my left foot, which pushed all the water on that side of the river against the left bank, and that bass boat plopped down onto the muddy bottom of the Buckhannon River. Well, when I opened my eyes and felt the power of that rod in my hand and saw those two walls of water on either side of me, well, I knew just what Moses must have felt like at the Red Sea. When I looked again and saw those two walls of water coming back at me, well, I knew just what Pharaoh and his armies must have felt like at the Red Sea. But before that water hit, I happened to notice a couple of things. For one thing, the line on the monster stick was still rocketing downriver straight and true. For another thing, there was a strange-looking blob on the end of the line, and the last thing I noticed was that Buck Dog was no longer in the boat with me. As near as I can figure, he was jealous that I was going to give that liver away, and so just as I had cast, he had sprung for the bait and had managed to get his collar snagged on the hook. I had just cast my dog away worse than the Swiss family Robinson, and I knew when he hit the water he was either going to drown or be swallowed up by a giant catfish, and either way I didn't want to have to explain that to my wife. I knew if I was going to save my dog I was going to have to work fast, but just then those two walls of water crashed down and drove that bass boat about 18 inches into the muddy bottom of the Buckhannon River. Well, I was stuck pretty good. I pulled on my legs and tried to get them out, but nothing was working. So then I reached in my pocket and I pulled out my stainless steel 74 function Swiss Army type knife and I quickly opened up the scuba gear and the flippers. That's the Jacques Cousteau special. I had to pay 10 extra bucks for that. I put all that gear on, pulled myself up out of the mud, grabbed that bucket of raw beef livers and the monster stick, and I started swimming toward shore. Well, I made it to shore just as Buck Dog started his downward arch, and as most of you know, right there alongside the Buckhannon River flows that fine and famed run of Weirton's world-famous steel fashioned into CSNX railroad tracks running clear from Cowan to Grafton via Burnsville, Buckhannon, Carrollton, and Philippi. And it just so happened that just then, at that very moment, a six-engine, 168-car CSNX monster train, loaded down with 19,364 tons of pure West Virginia bituminous coal, was rolling by. 
Well, I managed to get up to those tracks just as Buck Dog hit the water. I took the monster stick and jammed it into the rungs on the ladder of the last coal car on that train. Monster stick, meet monster train. And then I jumped aboard. Now, for various physical and scientific reasons that I really don't have time to go into here, the momentum of that train going in the opposite direction of that cast provided sufficient force to pull Buck Dog up out of the water. He got his feet under him. He was kind of cruising across the surface like a giant water bug. Even started to enjoy it. He picked up his front feet, did a couple of rooster tails, flipped over some fallen logs, and all the while I was just reeling him in. When I got him about ten feet off the shore from me, I just kind of flipped my wrists and popped him up out of the water. And honest to gosh, I think everything would have gone fine from that moment on. If a catfish the size of a Buick hadn't chosen that moment to spring for the bait. That catfish came out of the water faster than a White House intern from the Oval Office. He swallowed up Buck's hind end, but with his front end, Buck was still running as hard as he could to get away. And when I flipped my wrists, I flipped Buck Dog and that catfish up behind the train where they plopped down on the tracks. Now that catfish was wide enough that he straddled those tracks and he was sliding behind that train like a flatboat on the Erie Canal with Buck's front end just running as hard as he could and I was pulling as hard as I could on Buck's collar trying to pull him out of that catfish's mouth but nothing was working. And then I had an idea. I reached into that bucket of raw beef livers and I threw one at that catfish figuring that when it got within range, that catfish would open his mouth to swallow that liver, and I could just pull Buck out. Well, that liver got within range, and Buck Dog jumped up and swallowed it whole. I said, bad dog, bad dog, and I threw another liver. Well, Buck Dog swallowed that one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, until my five-gallon bucket was empty, and my five-gallon Buck Dog was full. Well, I was at my wits end then. I didn't know what I was going to do. But fortunately, Buck Dog is not without means of his own. You see, all that fear, all that adrenaline, and all that liver started to react. And, well, to put it politely, Buck Dog's gastrointestinal El Nino went into hyperdrive. And he released enough methane into that catfish to put Columbia Gas out of business. That catfish started to swell up like the Hindenburg and lift up off the tracks with Buck Dog still in his mouth. I had to play out line as quick as I could to keep it from breaking, and pretty soon I had all six miles of that line, Buck Dog and that catfish following that train like a kite. Well, now every time we'd go around a curve, it would whip that catfish out and put a lot of stress on that line. We went around a particularly sharp curve, and it whipped that catfish out so hard, and there was so much stress on that line that when the line hit a mountain about 50 feet from the top, it just cut right through that mountain like a hot knife through butter, and the pressure was so great that that mountaintop kind of jumped up and then slammed back down. Well, I started to feel good again then. Because if nothing else had gone right for me the whole day, at least I had just completed the first and only successful mountaintop removal and reclamation operation. But then I looked over my shoulder, and here comes that old tunnel again, and I started reeling just as quick as I could, and I had that catfish and buck dog right behind that train when we hit that tunnel. Well, that catfish was so big that only his lips would fit in the front of that tunnel, so his lips were sticking in with Buck Dog sticking out, and I was pulling on the monster stick as hard as I could, but it was a classic immovable object against an unstoppable force, and the line on the monster stick was pulled so tight that it was singing. 
And just when critical mass was about to hit, Buckdog shot out of that catfish's mouth like a cork from a champagne bottle. That catfish backed out of that tunnel and flapped around the sky like a deflating balloon until he dove back into the river. Well, I picked up the monster stick, Buckdog, and that empty bucket of raw beef livers, and I headed home. Where I put the monster stick back in its place of honor in my sister-in-law's house, where hopefully Paul and the monster stick can rest in peace. Bill Lepp tribute to his brother, Paul, who was every bit Bill's equal as a liar. And, of course, that story about the famous fishing rod, the monster stick. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back for a story from Pete Griffin and more here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, a tall tale about the monster stick's last ride. And up next, a story from Pete Griffin, who began his career not as a storyteller, but as a wildlife biologist for the U.S. Forest Service. For years and years, he did that and told natural history pieces for a local radio station. And since then, he's retired from the Forest Service, but uses all that knowledge to share stories stories all over the country. And this story he tells about a plant called the common butterwort and some of its special properties. Here's Pete Griffin with one of his trademark stories about the natural world. Not so common butterwort, it's called. Here's Pete on the Appleseed. A number of years ago, a friend of mine in Ketchikan, Gene, was suffering a drought of terrible proportions. He had not caught a king salmon all spring long, 60 days, all of April and May. The rest of us had caught kings. His neighbors had caught kings, but Gene was fishless, despite fishing nearly every day. We started referring to him as the the old man in the sea. He mentioned his run of bad luck one day to one of his co-workers, a a young raven-haired woman. Hmm, she said. It sounds to me like your boat has been cursed. Well, Gene hadn't considered that, but he was desperate. And so he was a bit more open to strange ideas. If that's true, he said, I don't know what to do about it. But his co-worker knew someone who did. And the next day, she said to Gene that he shouldn't go down to his boat at all for a day. Just leave it alone until the day after. Now, Gene's curiosity was piqued but he followed instructions. Two days later, he went down to his boat intent on going fishing. The only thing he found that was any different was what appeared to be a small, dried-up blue flower tied to the rail of his boat with a piece of black ribbon. That morning, Gene caught his first king salmon of the spring. The curse had been broken. As stories go, it was mildly amusing, but Certainly not something that would be useful in guiding your life. I forgot about that story. Until recently. I was out one nice day in May with binoculars, bird book, and one of my handy plant guides near the Mendenhall Glacier when I came across a plant I'd never noticed before. This small plant was in flower, and what had caught my eye was the single deep blue blossom, looking very much like a small violet or wild iris. I found a profusion of these plants around the shoreline of Mendenhall Lake. 
Well, I looked both ways down the shoreline to make sure there was no one looking before I got down on my hands and knees to get a better look, as it was only three inches tall. The flower was at the top of a single leafless stalk, rising from a rosette of pale yellow banana-shaped leaves splayed out on the ground at the base of the plant. The leaves had slightly rolled up edges, and I noticed they were slimy to the touch. Kind of a weird sensation. Well, this was going to be easy, I thought. This wasn't like any of the other plants I'd ever seen, and it should only take a couple of minutes to thumb through the plant book to sleuth it out. Well, I was wrong. After first checking both the violets and the wild irises, I must have sat on a rock for close to half an hour, aimlessly leafing through the book to no avail. This plant really was getting to be a mystery. Rather than give up and call some local plant expert when I got back home, I decided to employ the Griffin method of flower identification. I haven't patented this method, so you're all welcome to employ it free of charge. I only ask that when you use my never-fail method that you give me some credit for it. To use the Griffin method, begin at page 1 of your book. If your flower doesn't look like the picture on page 1, turn to page 2. If it doesn't look like the picture on page 2, continue on to page 3. Repeat as necessary. I went through the book page by page, through the primroses, the carrots, the borages, the asters, the peas, the buttercups. And then, on page 351, in a section called Oddballs, I found it. Common butterwort. Because it looks so much like a violet, it's also called bog violet or marsh violet. But a violet this flower is definitely not. The butterwort gets its name from the idea that it encouraged the production of milk from cows, ensuring a supply of butter. Farmers used to treat the chapped udders of milk cows with the juice of butterwort. Now, there might have been something to this. It seems that butterwort juice is known to inhibit the growth of bacteria. But what I also found was that butterwort grows in areas low in nitrogen. Now, some plants have adapted to that by forming alliances with bacteria that transform atmospheric nitrogen to ammonium that can be used by host plants. Alders and beech pea both use this to their advantage. But the butterwort uses a different means of getting its nitrogen. It's a meat eater. It attracts insects to its slimy leaves where they get stuck. Then the plant oozes digestive juices that dissolve the insect. The plant absorbs the nitrogen-rich insect proteins. And the antibacterial juice? Well, it helps ensure that the insects don't rot before the plant is able to absorb all the life fluids of the insect. Whoa, what a horrible way to go. It sounds like the plot of some black and white science fiction movie. What I also found, it was thought that butterwort protected cows from elves as well, and it protected humans from witches' curses. This is one potent plant. It's been years since any cows have been lost to elves, and I can't remember the last time witches caused us any problems. But come to think of it, my friend Gene went through a whole spring one year without catching a king salmon. He was so desperate, he agreed to some kind of mystical lifting of a curse, whether real or not. 
but Jean didn't imagine the dried blue flower tied to his bolt railing, what was surely a butterwort, and he didn't imagine the fact that he immediately caught a fish the day after. I think now that when I run into a long string of bad luck, luck so bad it can't possibly be my fault, I'm going to think I might be under some kind of curse. And now I know the cure and where to find it. A little blue carnivorous flower down by the lake shore. Common butterwort. What a powerful plant. Pete Griffin with one of his trademark stories about the natural world. Not-so-common butterwort, it's called. We've got a lot coming up. A story from Karen Golden, one from Kevin Kling, too, and even Connie Reagan-Blake will join us later on. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through songs and the things we see on screen, and exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on The Apple Seed. I'm joined by our producer, Jeff Simpson, who has been watching movies, well, he's like everybody else, been watching movies his whole life, right? Oh, yeah. But, uh, but, but, but uh, Jeff has an especially good eye. I love to talk about movies with Jeff. And uh, and the movie that we're going to talk about today is one that I st- sort of stumbled across. You know, you, you it wasn't recommended to me. I I didn't see a trailer for it or anything. I, this is kind of a you know scrolling through some streaming service, and I found myself watching this movie and was completely captivated by it. Yeah, and I stumbled across it because for a brief moment I signed up for a Netflix DVD subscription, and I just threw it on there. Right? Sure. So yeah. I was like, yeah, why not? Well, Taika Waititi directed this film. He's having uh, an amazing point in his career. Oh, sure. Because he is the director of a, a very popular film right now that could win some awards or at least be nominated, Jojo Rabbit. He directed the last Thor movie and will be directing another. That was kind and, of a revelation for everybody. Everybody right. kind of came to that Thor movie going, yeah. what on earth is this? You know? His roots are certainly in comedy. He was a part of uh, the, the television show Flight of the Concords yeah. and uh, what we do in the the shadows, which is just this ridiculous vampire spoof. Vampires' so, roommates, right? Right, vampire right, roommates. yeah. <laughs> so you wouldn't expect such a character-driven kind of dramedy from somebody with such a pedigree, right? Well, the movie is Hunt for the Wilder People, right? Hunt yes. Hunt for the Wilder Hunt People. Hunt for the Wilder People. <laughs> and this is a film that takes place in New Zealand. Surprise, surprise, Taika Waititi is from New Zealand. Yeah. And there are a lot of beautiful shots of New Zealand, so many that, you know, if Lord of the Rings isn't isn't going to convince you to go to New Zealand, this one certainly <laughs> will. Right. But it's about this little boy who is just bound Bouncing around from foster home to foster home, and uh, he's kind of about to get his third strike, meaning that if he gets thrown out of another foster home, they're going to throw him in juvenile detention, right? Yeah, right. And so he is put into this home 
by this very quirky and loving woman and her very cold husband, who's played by Sam Neill. Yeah, what a what a revelation that was. I kept thinking, and and Sam Neill kind of disappears into that role, you know, yes. the, the great Sam Neill. And you're thinking, who's that guy behind the beard? Who who is that guy? Who is yeah. that guy? And then yeah. you figure it out. It's Sam Neill. And I don't think I'm giving away too much by telling you that you know, within the first 20 minutes, this woman that you know he's starting to actually like, and hey, maybe I could stick around with this family. She dies suddenly in the first 20 minutes of the movie. So all of a sudden you have this kind of rough around the edges kid stuck in this situation with this man who does not really want to have a kid around. Yeah. And, you know, he ends up going out into the woods one day and this little boy, you know, bless his heart, who doesn't want to go back into the foster care system or go to juvie, he decides to fake his own death. <laughs> and through uh, through various circumstances, they end up in the, in the wilderness together on the run from authorities and they believe that uh, Sam Neill has abducted his foster child. <laughs> and hilarity and also uh, heartwarming ensues yeah. because you have these two characters that you find out over the course of the movie that need each other. They really need each other. You know, the, the boy teaches Sam Neill how to read and Sam Neill teaches this boy how to just grow up and be responsible. Right? It's a delightfully low budget film. Very right? quirky. Made, yeah. <laughs> made for a, about $5 million, which is nothing, right? That, nothing in, the, in, the, in terms of making films. Yeah. And the whole thing was shot, almost the whole thing was shot using a single little camera and it's a, it, it's, it's just this terrific little homemade movie from a guy who would go on to make some of the biggest sort of blockbusters of 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 this little era in which we're living now, you know, Taika Waititi. And he ain't done yet. And he ain't. <laughs> yeah. I certainly wasn't expecting to be so touched by this film. I am a huge sucker for character-driven movies. Yeah. You know, anybody can make a big spectacle of a movie and show things blowing up. But to have a really tight, well-written script that produ- that uh, presents characters that you actually care about, that's a lot tougher to do. And to pull it off in the way that you said, so affordably and in a way that really ensured his future of success in the filmmaking community yeah. is just amazing. Quirky little film that is uh, again so uh, so interesting and so heartwarming as you, as you as you get as you settle into this unlikely relationship between the kid and the Sam Neill character, both of them on the run. <laughs> right. It really gives you a, a greater appreciation too of families that are willing to take in foster kids, yeah. especially if they have kids of their own already. I live next door to a family that they have three of their own kids and they've adopted eight other children. Mm. So just imagine the size of their hearts to do that. <laughs> and I, my hat is off to anybody that is willing to, to I don't want to say make that sacrifice, but that is willing to open up their homes and their hearts 
to people that really need them. It's, a, it's such an interesting little film and, 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 and such a fun one to recommend. Hunt for the Wilder People. These days, again, we're living in an era where it's possible to find just about anything you want, right? You could go tonight and find this movie <laughs> and watch it with I your I believe family. it's on Hulu for free if you want to watch it. <laughs> Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, a pleasure to talk with Jeff Simpson about it. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. Grateful to be here. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, certainly through the telling of tales around the kitchen table, from teller to listener through generations, but also through the books that we read, the films that we choose to see. And it's always a pleasure to chat with Jeff about a film. Jeff, of course, is the producer of The Appleseed. And we're going to be back with more. You're going to hear a story from Karen Golden coming up, and you won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Today, filled with fish stories. And you've heard from Bill Lepp and Pete Griffin. We had a conversation with Jeff Simpson about Hunt for the Wilder People, a film of which he is fond and that you can track down and see as well. Up next, a story from Karen Golden. Now, you know as well as I do that fish tales can get pretty tall. But this one's not a tall tale at all. It's just a relation of an experience that Karen had by the Santa Monica P. You'll enjoy it. It's called Holy Woman, and we're happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. Did you ever wonder what a holy person looks like? If you were to say to me one year ago, close your eyes and imagine a holy person. I would have closed my eyes and thought of a man like Moses coming off the mountain with his long robe blowing in the wind. Or I'd see Miriam shaking her timbrel at the parting of the Red Sea. I may have even seen a rabbi stroking his long black beard while pondering a passage in the Talmud. I wouldn't imagine these holy people doing much of anything except standing in one place and communicating with God. That's what I thought holiness looked like. But today, when I close my eyes, I see a completely different picture. A story unfolds. First, I hear the sound of the waves beating against the Santa Monica Pier. They crash and recede and gurgle around the sturdy wooden poles. There is a distant foghorn. I see in my mind's eye the same darkness I saw a year ago on that special day that I decided to visit the pier at night. It is so dark, I can't see the water crashing, except for the peaks which catch the moonlight and playfully toss it from one wave to the next. I decided to walk along the pier that evening because I love watching people fish at night. It's so peaceful. There's a brisk fall breeze in the air. There are hardly any people around except the fishermen and women. The pier is so quiet that each fishing pole makes a... 
sounds softly on the breeze. The water gurgles. Waves crashing. I follow the sound to the far end of the pier. I see a group of men fishing together, young and old. They speak Spanish in a whisper. Their little sons play with the bait and buckets and look into the dark waters. All is quiet. It doesn't seem like they're catching anything. I look to my left, and I see a young couple fishing together on what appears to be a date. He's wearing a brown suit and flowered tie, and she's wearing a short fur coat, miniskirt, and black stiletto heels. They throw out their lines, and look at each other lovingly. They giggle. It doesn't seem like they're catching anything. And then I look to my right. I see a young woman fishing alone. She's wearing a green sweatshirt and blue jeans, and she has shoulder-length brown hair. I don't know why she catches my eye. She looks so plain. Maybe it's because she's a woman fishing alone. Maybe I notice the glow-in-the-dark green bucket by her side. I walk towards her and look in the bucket. There are three fish, not big fish, not fisherman story-sized fish, just little ones. I become very curious. Caught yourself a good-sized dinner. She doesn't look at me when she says, "They're not for my dinner." She just keeps her eyes fixed on her line. Then I remember all the news I've been hearing about how polluted the Santa Monica Bay is. Oh, you probably aren't going to eat them. They're just too dirty, full of chemicals, pesticides. I've been reading about it in the paper. No, these fish are clean enough to eat. See the sign over there? It says that only certain fish are bad for your health. I know my fish, and these aren't the bad ones. She says all of this without looking up. Blunk. I bet you have a fish tank. I love saltwater fish. They're so colorful. These three will look great in your living room. Don't have a tank, she says, leaning over the dock. Well, then, what are you going to do with these fish? She turns and looks at me, and I notice that her eyes are hazel. See those folks sitting over there behind that trash bin? Out of nowhere appears a homeless man in a tattered overcoat. A shoeless woman and a small baby rocking back and forth in a makeshift hammock strung between two poles. I fish for them. They've been living there for months. Why, just last night I caught a big fish and gave it to a homeless man sitting in a wheelchair. You should have seen the look on his face when he rolled off to join his buddies. How often do you fish? I ask. Every day after work. I come down to the pier from about five thirty to oh, I'd say ten, eleven, if I'm lucky. How long have you been doing this? Two years, she says, concentrating once again on her fishing. <clears throat> Why only two years? She sits very still and pauses for a moment before looking at me. Um, two years ago. My grandpa took sick with cancer. He was a fisherman, and he used to come out here to the Santa Monica Pier every night. He loved to be near the ocean 
and he loved to give his fish away. He used to say it was his way of giving back. Just before he died, he gave me this fishing pole. So now I fish for him, and I fish for them. So today, if you were to ask me to close my eyes and imagine a holy person, I would see a woman in a green sweatshirt and blue jeans who casts out her line and pulls in fish at the Santa Monica Pier. Karen Golden with a fishing story called Holy Woman. Happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. And up next, we've got a story from the great Minnesota storyteller Kevin Kling. And in this story, he'll tell about a fishing lure called the Wonder Lure. According to the advertisements he saw for it, it has almost miraculous properties. And by the end of the story, you're going to want to get one for yourself. Here's Kevin Kling with Wonder Lure on the Appleseed. As my spiritual advisor, Jed Clampett, once said, If you're too busy to go fishing, you're too busy. Now, granted, it's easy for him to say with $156 million in Mr. Drysdale's bank, but still, he has a point. Now, I'm ashamed to admit that the last few months I've been too busy to actually go fishing, but that does not stop me from flipping on the television and watching one or two of those fishing shows. I feel strongly that a bit of leisure time, although brief and channeled through another, is essential for resting my oft-overworked muse. My friend Marie calls this composting, but it's basically laying around with a bag of chips watching another guy fish on TV. Now, these fishing shows used to have celebrities like Bing Crosby or Kurt Gowdy or Wally Cox battling some respectable swordfish. But now, they have these experts, taut, tawny, and tan, with neatly trimmed beards wearing new flannel shirts just out of the box. They don't seem to be the types that read for pleasure, but with calculated ease, they can seduce, enrage, or confuse a multitude of sizable fish into life-threatening action, all while using only the fishing products they personally endorse. And every year they come out with a brand new and improved gadget that uses NASA space shuttle technology, sonar, radar. There's this high-test fishing line that's not only invisible to the fish, but can also pull your Winnebago out of the ditch. There's special fish scent spray, so you can spray your bait and erase the human scent. Now, a word of warning on the special fish scent spray. Keep it away from food. I got a little on the top of my beer can once, and I was tasting fish for three weeks. One day, there's this new host on one of these shows, and he's got a pencil-thin mustache, and he's wearing a loud suit and tie. Definitely not a guy you'd want frying up your shore lunch. But he claims his new wonder lure will not only catch the fish, but it'll actually change your life. He asks you to give the wonder lure a try and see if once you've caught some fish, and you will catch fish, see if you don't feel better about yourself. And when you feel better about yourself, you carry yourself different. You're confident, aggressive, 
People will naturally sense this and treat you with respect. Then he pulls out the testimonials. He reads a letter from a guy in Cleveland who wrote to say he used the lure and after limiting out, came home, gave his wife a hug. She said, what have you done with my husband? And after a season of unbelievable luck, he put away the bottle and was spending quality time with his kids. His marriage was saved thanks to the wonder lure. Another gentleman, after the confidence provided by a nice stringer of fish, went out and made wise investments, and they showed a helicopter landing on the top of a building, which I guess belonged to the lucky fisherman. Another guy met his future wife at a tackle shop when they both reached down for the same exact wonder lure. Another guy lost 160 pounds. Another guy used the lure to find his long-lost birth parents, story after story. Then the announcer came to a letter that was hard for him to read. He took a deep breath and relayed the story of this woman's husband, a man dying of a terminal illness. The man had led a good life, but his time had come. He had but one last wish, which was to land one more nice one. But the fates had conspired to see him time and time again come back empty or with just a couple of measly perch. On a last-ditch effort, he purchased a wonder lure, and with his clock winding down, he came home with not one but a limit of nice ones, all keepers. His wife wrote to report that he had left this world in peace and had actually lived three weeks longer than the so-called expert said he would. Now the announcer is crying, tears streaming down his face. I'm crying, too. I yell into the other room to my girlfriend, Mary. Mary, maybe we ought to get one of those lures, honey, you know, just in case. She says, get two. She's going to use hers to save the rainforest. Kevin Kling with Wonder Lure. And up next, Connie Riggan Blake with a story that exaggerates everything in classic fishing tale fashion as she and her cousin exchange stories about their fishing experiences. Connie Riggan Blake with Lantern on the Appleseed. start with a story about my growing up. Now, I had a large extended family, 13 of us cousins. We all kind of congregated to one uncle and aunt's land down in Palatka, Florida. Actually, East Palatka, Florida. They were on the east side of the St. John's River. Well, my uncle had a farm there. Now, I need to tell you, though, the story I'm going to tell you, my cousins don't believe a word of it. But we used to all love to do a little fishing. We had a wooden dock that went out over the river there, and we each had our own methods. My grandfather, Pop Freeman, he loved to take that square white bread, you know, that real soft in the middle, and he'd take that gooey part, roll it into little bitty tiny dough balls. And then he'd set those up on the dock, and in the Florida sun, in about 10 seconds, they were dried up and hook up one of those dough balls and put it right down into the water with a pole and... We'd hope and pray that we'd catch a little brim. Maybe if we caught two or three of them, my Aunt Ree would fix them for dinner that night. Well, one day, I was doing a little different kind of fishing. I had found my own place. It was down along the bank. There was a great big old live oak tree, big heavy moss. So I was kind of hidden under there, and I was having a good time, and my cousin Cindy walked by. And she said, Connie, what you doing? I said, well, I'm fishing. She said, fishing? I don't see a pole or nothing. I said, nope, don't need one. She said, well, I don't see a line 
I said, nope, don't need one. She said, well, you don't even have a hooker. I said, nope, don't need one. And she said, well, if you don't have a pole or a line or a hook, how are you fishing? And I told her, I said, I got me this little plug of chewing tobacco. What I do is I just kind of break some of it off and I sprinkle it out over that water. Those fish, they come right up to the surface, grab some of that chewing tobacco and dive back down into the water. She said, I still don't see how that's fishing. And then I told her, I said, Cindy, those fish, they got to come up to spit. When they do, I got me a stick and I just hit them over the head. <laughs> well, she seemed pretty impressed. And she asked me, she said, well, have you caught many? I said, well, just the other day, I caught me a, a 10-pound minnow. <laughs> well, she said, Connie, I got something to tell you. She said, I was out just about three weeks ago doing a little bit of shrimping. Down in Florida, you do shrimping, and really early evening's the best time. Dusk, you know, she had Pop's lantern sitting there on the little rowboat. The way we used to do shrimping was with a big, round net. Had weights all the way around. You'd put one of those weights in your mouth and then just cast out like that. And she said, I was getting ready to cast, and she said, I knocked Pop's lantern right down into the water. And I told her, I said, I thought that was a shame. She said, no, 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 here's what I want to tell you. She said, just the other day, I was out doing some regular fishing, you know, with a hook and all, and I hooked up that same lantern. And I told her, I said, well, you know, I've heard about that kind of thing happening, boots and all, and I've had my hook snag on things. And she said, yeah, Connie, but that lantern, it was still lit. <laughs> That's when I told her, I said, Cindy, I'll take nine and three-quarter pounds off that minna if you'll at least blow out that lantern. <laughs> Connie Regan Blake with a story called Lantern, a fish tale if there ever was one. And up next, a story from Steve Otto called Bass Fish and Walnut about a fishing mishap. A mishap, at least, for the squirrel in the story. Here's Steve on the Appleseed. There's just something magic that happens between a father and a son when they're out fishing. And I used to just love to go fishing with my dad. We'd sit on the creek bank, and we'd watch our bobbers, and we'd fish, and we'd catch lots. But there was always that magic just being there with him. Even on the days where we were doing more fishing than we were catching, it was magic. I can still remember that day because we had not gotten a bite. And I was getting kind of tired. I mean, for a nine-year-old, sitting and watching a bobber that doesn't move at all was really kind of hard. And I began looking around. Now, down the creek, just a little ways from where we were sitting, 
There was an old cottonwood tree that the stream had eaten out underneath the roots, and that cottonwood had fallen down into the creek. Now that's not too unusual. You see that all the time. But today was different, cause sitting on the end of that cottonwood log, just. Before it went down into the water, was a green walnut. I turned to Daddy and I said, "Daddy, look at that! There's a green walnut sitting on top of that cottonwood log." And Daddy looked at that and he says, "You know, you don't see that very often." And I had hardly gotten the words out of my mouth when. A little gray fox squirrel come trit trotting his way down that cottonwood log. He picked up that green walnut and began to husk out that green walnut. He got down to the nut itself and he broke that nut open and he was just sitting there eating out that nut meat when the water around that log. It kind of began to quiver, and then it 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 kind of began to roll and boil and bubble, and up out of that water come the biggest bass fish I've ever seen in my life. That bass fish he glommed onto that squirrel. He pulled that squirrel right straight down into the water. I turned around, and my daddy's eyes were as big as saucers. He said, "I ain't never seen anything like that in my life." We dropped our poles and we ran downstream to watch for that squirrel to pop up. But you know, he never did. We went back to our fishing, but I couldn't concentrate on. Watching that bobber, I kept looking at that cottonwood log, and all of a sudden, around the base of that cottonwood log, just where it went into the water, that water began to quiver again. And then it be, began to roll and began to bubble, and up out of that water come the big bass fish again, and he put another green walnut on the end of that log. And you know, Daddy and I, we sat there all afternoon. And watched that bass fish catch his limit of squirrel. Steve Otto on the Appleseed. How about we wrap up our hour today with an entry in the Radio Family Journal? The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I've always liked having a pet around the house, and while I know the world is sort of divided between dog people and cat people, I was always both. 
And even more, seems like there was often a dog in my childhood and often a cat, but just as often a goat or a steer or a parakeet or a couple of finches. I've always liked to share my space with another animal. Maybe you know how that is. Thing is, sometimes some sorts of animals are possible as pets and others aren't. For example, I rented for a while in a place that didn't allow dogs or cats. It seemed imprudent to ask the landlord how he felt about goats or steers. So I got a little 10-gallon aquarium and put a couple of little platies in there and a couple of snails too. I was to be sure a little nervous about it. I'd never kept fish before in any kind of serious way, and I almost didn't do it because I thought I probably wouldn't be good at it. And for dang sure there are a lot of people who know fish better than I do. There are a lot of people who know platies better than I do. They can tell a blue wagtail from a high fin sunset variatus, not me. The platies I bought, I bought because they were called Mickey Mouse platies, and they were called Mickey Mouse platies because they have markings on their tails that look like Mickey Mouse silhouettes. A large dark circle with two smaller dark circles above it where Mickey's ears go. I mean, who's not going to buy a fish with a Mickey Mouse head on its tail? I loved my fish and my landlord was okay with them too and I was pretty good I guess at taking care of them as evidenced primarily by the fact that they were still alive a few months later and as further evidenced by one kind of miraculous morning when I went to sprinkle a tiny bit of food into the aquarium and what was that what was that something moving just skittering over the rocks down at the bottom of the aquarium I got my glasses for a better look. At first, I couldn't make myself see again what I seemed to have seen a moment before, but after a few seconds of staring, yeah, there was something moving down there. In fact, there were a whole bunch of somethings scooting around down there. About a dozen tiny little orange commas were darting in and out of the fronds of the fake plants stuck in the rocks. I was a dad, or, or I felt like one. I mean, look at those little guys. I started to worry about them, worried, actually, about whether the other fish in the aquarium would enjoy eating them. I tried to create places for them to hide down there in the aquarium. I put more plants down there, primarily. And over the next few weeks, those fish began to look less like commas and more like fish. Born and raised at my place. I never had so much fun. People would come over to the house and I'd walk them into the kitchen to take a look, show off my aquatic progeny. Everyone was impressed, or at least they acted like they were. Soon, those fish were big enough to feed themselves. I learned that a fish at this stage of development is called a fry. And then sometime later, you could see their fins working away and you could see their little scales. And I learned that a fish at that stage is called a fingerling. And then before I knew it, they were fully as long as their parents. And of course, I had to find other homes for some of them. They like a little elbow room. But there were a few of them that stayed, like Charlotte's spider children in the book Charlotte's Web, to delight me as I sat next to the aquarium and watched them. The Mickey Mouse markings on their tails were a little less distinct on this new generation, the shape a little muted. It's how you could tell them apart from their folks. And that was two generations ago. Two more broods have miraculously appeared in that aquarium over the years, and it still sits on a shelf in my office. 
The population of the aquarium changes from time to time, but there are still a few descendants of those first platies who first came to live in my rental house as a concession to the pet tolerances of my landlord. The snails, too, have multiplied and replenished the aquarium, and everybody seems as happy as clams. Once I wasn't very good at keeping fish. I didn't have a good handle on how much to feed them or how often. I worried that the water was too hot or too cold. I found myself getting out of bed in the middle of the night to check on everyone. And there were sometimes little belly-up signs of my incompetence in those early days. But because I liked those little guys, I stuck with it and I got better at it. That's the way of doing things, isn't it? Doing a thing teaches you to do it, and you move from not being very good at it to being better. And I look at the fish in my aquarium now, filled with color and a degree of variety, a little ecosystem in there, and a pretty balanced one at that, and for sure one that has delighted me as I write at my desk. And as I watch those little guys, I'm glad I didn't talk myself out of getting an aquarium. Just because I thought I'd never be good at keeping fish. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal and for stories from Connie Regan Blake and Steve Otto and Pete Griffin and Bill Lepp and Karen Golden and Kevin Kling, too. This hour was written by Trent Horton. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Always a pleasure. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.